Uh, hello. Some time ago, I tried an experimental reading from my book, What is Man? Adam, Alien, or Ape? And I asked for feedback as to whether this was something that people would enjoy seeing in a sequential series. Now, the feedback was favorable, and uh, although there were some people who didn't quite like it, but nevertheless, it seemed to me to be something that would be useful and welcomed by many. And so I'm going to now launch into a series in which we shall read all the way through the book. Uh, probably half a chapter at a time, and there are 14 chapters. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to start with chapter one. My experimental uh, trial was with the beginning of chapter two. But uh, I've changed the format a little bit so that I am now able to read the book while facing the camera, which makes, I think, an improvement on the original idea. So here we go, chapter one, I shall read from the text. Occasionally I may insert an explanatory comment, but I think it'll be obvious when I do that. So I hope you enjoy What is Man? Chapter one is entitled who do you think you are? And it is a summary of the book in one sense. It is uh, an attempt to lay out the issues that are going to be addressed in the whole book. The chapter heading quotation is from Psalm 8 and verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Uh, this is the psalmist addressing God, of course. What is man? The subtitle of this book <clears throat> offers three options, Adam, alien, or ape. By Adam, I mean the biblical view that human beings are made in the image of God. I use the word alien to reflect the popular idea that humanity is not the only intelligent life form in the cosmos and may even have arrived on earth from somewhere else. By ape, I mean the common belief that you and I are simply superior simians. Let's start by making clear what we mean by man. The word is used in three ways. It can mean a male member of the human race. It can mean the human race itself, man equals humanity. And it can also be used 
uh, uh, to refer to a member of the human race regardless of gender, man equals person. A manhole can be used by women as well as men and a man-eating tiger isn't bothered about the sex of its victim. This third use of the word man is today often considered uh, politically incorrect and I apologize in advance to anyone who is offended by it. But in writing this book, I found it unavoidable for two reasons. Firstly, there is no alternative when discussing the essence of the human condition. To give just one example, the phrase, the spirit of man, cannot be replaced by the spirit of humanity, because humanity is a collective noun and its use would change the meaning. Secondly, this third use of man is common historically, and without it, I could neither quote the Bible accurately nor offer you the wisdom of Alexander Pope's poem, The Proper Study of Mankind is Man, cited below. In this book, therefore, I shall make use of all three meanings of the word man, but I trust that the context will always make it clear which is intended. For clarity, I will capitalize the first letter to read capital M-A-N whenever the reference is to humanity as a whole. Writing in 1734, the poet Alexander Pope described the contradictions of human nature with eloquent clarity. Man is, he writes, in doubt to deem himself a god or a beast, in doubt his mind or body to prefer, born but to die and reasoning but to err, alike in ignorance his reason such whether he thinks too little or too much, chaos of thought and passion all confused, still by himself abused or disabused, created half to rise and half to fall, great lord of all things, yet a prey to all, sole judge of truth, in endless error hurled, the glory, jest, and riddle of the world. The depressing fact is that everything Alexander Pope said nearly 300 years ago is still true. As a race, we continue to notch up amazing achievements in the arts, science, and technology, counterbalanced by uncertainty about what it means to be human and apprehension about where mankind is heading. To an impassioned observer, we are indeed the glory, jest, and riddle of the world. Whether we accept it or not, the Bible has a clear explanation for this state of affairs, this confusion and inconsistency. Made in the image of God, man retains a nobility of nature and purpose. <clears throat> 
that leads to great achievements. But as a race in rebellion against its creator, we can and frequently do plumb the depths of wickedness and depravity. This book contends that we can never really understand ourselves, our triumphs and our failures, without this biblical perspective on human sin and our need of redemption. Subheading, Digging Up Roots. British TV presenter Natasha Kaplinsky went to Cape Town celebrity chef Rick Stein to China and actress Zoe Wanamaker to Ukraine. What were they looking for? The answer is their roots. The long-running British TV series Who Do You Think You Are helps various celebrities construct their family trees discovering secrets and surprises from the past, along with the skeletons lurking in their ancestral cupboards. Most people are intrigued by their own ancestry. When Alex Haley's book Roots was published in USA in 1976, it became a sensational bestseller. More than a mere book, it tapped deeply into the hunger of black Americans to know more about their African ancestral home. According to commentators, Haley's quest for his roots changed the way black people thought about themselves and how white Americans viewed them. Why? Because our origins ultimately determine who and what we are. But no amount of world travel or searching dusty archives will reveal what really ought to excite our curiosity, the origin of humanity itself. The question, who am I, can only be truly answered when we know the solution to the larger riddle, what is man? When a young child asks, where did I come from? The child isn't asking for a lesson in reproductive biology. Rather, the question relates to self-consciousness. <clears throat> the child is aware of his or her own individual selfhood. Neither chickens nor chimpanzees, I suspect, worry about such things. These concerns are unique to man, and that is nothing new. Addressing the biblical God some 3,000 years ago, King David put it thus, <clears throat> When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Uh, just a comment there, the expression, you have made him a little lower than the angels, is probably better translated, you have made him 
for a little while lower than the angels. Close comment. <coughs> Subheading David or Darwin. There are, of course, some zany answers to the question, what is man? The famous physicist Enrico Fermi seriously discussed the idea that we might be an alien race that colonized the earth from space. A more philosophical but equally strange idea is that we are a computer-generated simulation, the product of a matrix set up by powers beyond our comprehension for their own entertainment. I let James uh, Berardinelli tell the story. Quote, Thomas Anderson is leading a double life. To most people, he is a hard-working computer programmer who holds down a nine-to-five job for a major software corporation. But in the privacy of his home, he's a hacker named Neo. Neo is dissatisfied with his existence. And while he is groping for a meaning to it, he is contacted by a mysterious computer presence known as Morpheus, who explains that the reality he is uh, used to is a fabrication, the product of a sinister race of intelligent machines that use human beings as power supplies to be discarded at will. Uh, this quote is uh, in relation to the film entitled Matrix, of course, which is fiction, about to be very persuasive uh, to some people. Bizarre though they may be, these speculations are not easy to refute. But I will pass them by and move on to what most people would consider more solid ground. Today we are presented with several plausible answers to the question, what is man? Answers typified by two extremes. By David in his psalm and Charles Darwin in his theory of evolution or common descent, insofar as it seeks to explain the origin of man without reference to God. However, there are other alternatives that lie between these extremes. So in this chapter, we shall briefly introduce not two, but four models of man using image terminology throughout for the sake of consistency. But these four views see mankind as being respectively in one, the image of the apes, two, in the image of an emergent spirit, three, in the image of an implanted spirit, or four, in the image of God. I use the word spirit here simply as a shorthand uh, to describe the qualities of mind and self-awareness that separate man so completely from even the most intelligent animals. Subheading, image of the apes. Under this heading, we need to consider two distinct themes. 
that underlie what Raymond Tallis calls aping mankind, of which more later. There is, of course, the familiar biological narrative of neo-Darwinian evolution, but this is only one side of the coin. The other side, less obvious, but probably more powerful, is a philosophical narrative called positivism, which claims that all knowledge is ultimately based on sense experience. Why does this matter? Because the biological story, nourished by this hidden philosophical stream, proudly proclaims itself to be the only show in town. It isn't, of course, as this book seeks to demonstrate. But the positivism's total denial of God, metaphysics, spirituality, and the soul dominates 21st century Western thought to an amazing degree. Even if your eyes glaze over at the very mention of the word philosophy, be warned, your understanding of both yourself and the world around you is almost certainly affected by positivistic thinking. Here, we'll do a little more than identify this hidden stream because it will become a major topic later in the book when we consider the mind and consciousness of man. But let me give one or two recent examples to whet or spoil your appetite. In the 2010 book, <clears throat> The Grand Design, a famous cosmologist Stephen Hawking and his co-author renamed this philosophy scientific determinism and explained this book is rooted in the concept of scientific determinism, which implies that there are no miracles or exceptions to the law of nature. The laws of nature, of course, are derived exclusively from our physical observations of the natural world around us, observations that are ultimately recorded by our physical senses, aided where necessary by instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and so on. A second example, is the search for extraterrestrial life that often hits the headlines in the popular press. We shall examine this in depth in chapter three and see that the whole hugely expensive enterprise is based on the idea that life and intelligence have arisen on earth by natural processes and must therefore exist or have existed on a multitude of earth-like planets throughout the universe. Any suggestion of creation by God is rigorously excluded, not by the science involved, but by the underlying positivist philosophy, so that more of this will come later. Uh, let us now consider the biological narrative. Subheading, Biology After Darwin. <coughs> In The Descent of Man, Charles Darwin traced man's origin back to the ape-like an ancestors and beyond, 
believing that all living things, the whole biosphere, originated from a single primal organism, an idea called common descent. His original theory, published in his famous book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, has of course been significantly elaborated over the years into neo-Darwinism, the so-called modern synthesis, which incorporates genetic evolution. Briefly stated, the theory claims that organisms evolve by a dual process consisting of one, random genetic mutations, changes that is in the organism's DNA, produced by a variety of causes, followed by two, natural selection of those members of a population to which mutations have imparted superior reproductive capacity. Although it is admitted that the genetic mutations are overwhelmingly damaging or neutral in their effect, it is held that favorable mutations that is, those that improve reproductive success do occasionally take place. These beneficial mutations then spread through the population because their owners reproduce more successfully than others. One seldom mentioned problem with this scenario as it is applied to mankind is that if it is true, humans are seriously over-evolved. That is, we have acquired characteristics that far exceed any conceivable value in increasing our reproductive capacity. According to the Neo-Darwinian narrative, no capacity should arise in an organism that does not improve its ability to reproduce. But humans possess powers that flatly contradict this. An interesting example was reported in the London Times newspaper, an article called Think Big, Your Brain Can Store 4.7 Billion Books, close quotes. Terry Sejnovsky, professor of computational neurobiology at the Salk Institute in California, has found that the part of the brain that deals with memory has a capacity 10 times bigger than previously thought and could store data roughly equivalent to the entire contents of the World Wide Web. He states, our new measurements of the brain's memory capacity increase conservative estimates by a factor of 10 to at least a petabyte in the same ballpark as the World Wide Web. We discovered the key to unlocking the design principle for how the hippocampal neurons function with low energy but high computational power. If we could use this enormous memory storage capacity, of course, it could be interpreted as the outcome of survival value, Darwinism. But we can't. We regularly forget the names of acquaintances 
and where we put the car keys. And I doubt whether many of us could memorize even one book, let alone 4.7 billion. In other words, we have failed to evolve any means of accessing this huge potential memory capacity, which therefore can do nothing to help us reproduce. So why do we possess these potential powers of memory? Why have they allegedly evolved? No naturalistic theory of evolution can answer this question. I might add that there are many other human characteristics that have no plausible reproductive value, such as the ability to handle and enjoy musical, aesthetic, philosophical, and mathematical concepts. Humble bacteria reproduce far more efficiently than human beings. Subheading, Doubting Darwinism. I devoted several chapters in my previous book, Who Made God, to a step-by-step -step critique of evolutionary mechanisms and will not repeat it here. However, the conclusion was that although Darwinian processes can and do produce minor changes in the characteristics of populations, microevolution as it is sometimes called, uh, it is incapable of creating the major changes required to transform one kind of creature into another. We call that macroevolution. Evidence from centuries of artificial selection by human intervention, as practiced by plant and animal breeders, support this conclusion. While many new varieties or breeds of, say, cats or dogs have been generated, artificial selection never produces new kinds of organisms, like breeding bears from cats or goats from dogs. There are natural barriers to macroevolution that no amount of human ingenuity can overcome. Some of these barriers may well be surmounted using genetic engineering, uh, in which scientists deliberately edit the DNA of an organism to produce, for example, disease-resistant crops, or bacteria that manufacture medically useful compounds. But genetic engineering requires the skilled and purposeful manipulation of organisms by intelligent human agents. It doesn't happen by chance or accident. Furthermore, the emergence of the hypothetical first living organism from non-living starting material, a process often called chemical evolution, is today commonly attributed to fortuitous but entirely undirected physical and chemical processes, which are still unknown. Such undirected processes have never been observed in the laboratory and are never likely to be observed. In spite of decades of effort by origin of life researchers, it is true that artificial life of a kind has been created by chemists such as Craig Venter using 
uh, sophisticated techniques to imitate the DNA found in nature. Uh, but this has only been achieved under the most precise control and direction of skilled scientists. The creation of artificial life forms, if achieved, will not occur without the careful direction of highly intelligent people, never by undirected natural processes. Though technically not part of neo-Darwinism, the theory of chemical evolution completes the picture for the evolutionists by reducing the origin and development of life and thus of man to purely natural processes accessible to scientific study. Most people today assume that Darwin's, quotes, scientific, close quotes, account of human origins must be right and the Bible's religious teaching must be wrong, or at best mythological. Man is not God's creation, we are told, but simply an animal that happens to have climbed further up the tree of evolution. Like every other form of life, <clears throat> they say, he is an accident of evolution. But the urgent and ongoing search for missing links between apes and man, we consider that later, bears witness to the huge biological, intellectual and existential gap that separates humans from our closest supposed relatives, such as chimpanzees. Criticism of common descent is not tolerated in educational establishments, in spite of escaping scientific inadequacies and the fact that many well-qualified scientists reject it. Alternatives to Darwinism are vigorously suppressed, not least in Western nations like the UK and USA, where the teaching of evolutionary theory is mandated in schools and creationism is effectively banned and ridiculed, both by the establishment and the mass media. This unwillingness to allow an open public debate of evolutionary theory is rather curious, given that his proponents claim to have overwhelming scientific evidence in their favor. We shall develop this debate later, but here's a final thought. In spite of the adulation heaped upon it, Darwinism makes virtually no contribution to modern biological research. Uh, Philip uh, Skell, Emeritus Evan Pugh Professor at Pennsylvania State University and a member of the USA's National Academy of Sciences writes, quotes, the modern form of Darwin's theory has been raised to its present high status because it is said to be the cornerstone of modern experimental biology. But is that correct? While the great majority of biologists would probably agree with Theodosius Dobzhansky's dictum that, quote, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, close quotes, most can conduct their work quite happily without particular reference to evolutionary ideas. And Professor Scale also points out that uh, A.S. Wilkins, 
editor of the journal Bioessays, wrote in 2000, evolution would appear to be the indispensable unifying idea and at the same time a highly superfluous one. Well, there we're going to pause our readings. Uh, that will be enough time spent on the first episode and we shall continue with chapter one in the next relevant episode. Thank you.